Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burdett, News Editor of Foresight Health. It is Friday, April 22nd. It is Earth Day. What are you going to do today and every day to protect our environment? On today's episode of the Roundup, we're going to talk about our ability to protect patients through government regulation. Specifically, we're going to talk about provisions in CMS's proposed inpatient payment regulations that address health equity and maternal health, two of our favorite topics here on the Roundup. To tell us whether these provisions will work or not are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? I spent a full day this week in Muskegon, Michigan with Esther Dyson as she did a series of update meetings for the Wellville Initiative aimed at promoting better health in five challenge communities, Muskegon being one of them. Esther has been at this for seven or eight years and spending the day with her showed me just how remarkably complex improving community-wide health is, requires proactively addressing education, employment, housing, social service provision, and recreation. And above all else, it requires trusting relationships built over time through collective collaborative action, which Esther is promoting there. Healthcare is a subset of health. It consumes a disproportionate share of societal resources. And often the traditional payers and providers stymie efforts to improve broader community health by pursuing their individual organizational imperatives. At the same time, there are countless numbers of people in places like Muskegon doing the hard work of building better communities. So how am I doing? I'm encouraged by their collective commitment and energized to find ways to help them through our Foresight Health platform. Got it. Yeah, the only thing I know about Muskegon is that you could take a ferry from there to Manitowoc, Wisconsin. So like I always say, you learn something on the roundup. <laughs> Julie, how are you doing today? Well, Dave, that's amazing that you got to spend the week there with Esther. She's doing some incredible groundbreaking work. I know you're a huge fan of hers, just like I am, Julie. Couldn't agree with you more. She's great. I, on the other hand, am enjoying a quiet week at home. Not that it's not filled with work, but I can say that May is going to be crazy travel. And I just feel like we're all getting back on the road with a vengeance. I'm not sure I like it. <laughs> well, that's a good segue into our next topic here, which is the CDC's regulations to protect us from the potentially deadly coronavirus. As you all know, a federal judge in Florida this week struck down the CDC's requirement that people wear masks on airplanes and other forms of public transportation. And Julie, it sounds like you'll be on a lot of that next month. The Justice Department said it's appealing that ruling. Dave, are you changing your mask wearing behavior because of the decision? It is remarkable that a single judge has that much power, but the judge's ruling won't affect my behavior. I'll still mask up on airplanes, public transit, and other venues where appropriate. Got it. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how about you? Will the ruling affect how and when you wear a mask? I'm with Dave. This is where my personal freedoms come in, and I plan on masking all the time on public transportation. But I will admit, I've noticed I'm a little schizophrenic about my gym and grocery stores and malls. And in a few weeks, I'm about to go to the New Orleans Jazz Festival. So that is really going to be the true test of my comfort level at close quarters. So I'll let you know how it goes. 
Good. Good luck with that. One of the rules I live by is never listen to anyone from Florida, especially an unqualified federal judge appointed by the former president. So uh, I will keep wearing a mask on planes and on public transportation and in stores. And I got my second booster on Monday, by the way. So I'm still standing there. It works. Tell us what you really think, Dave. Florida rule is one to live by, that's for sure. Yeah, maybe we'll do a whole show on Florida sometime. Okay, let's talk about these proposed regulations from CMS that would boost efforts to improve health equity. On Monday, CMS issued its proposed inpatient payment regs for fiscal 2023. Uh, CMS wants to add three health equity measures to its inpatient quality reporting program. The first is the hospital commitment to health equity measure. It measures a hospital's commitment to equity and its culture and care delivery by looking at things like strategic planning, data collection, and leadership engagement. The second is the screening for social drivers of health measure. Are you screening and identifying patient-level health-related social needs like food security, housing stability, transportation needs, and interpersonal safety? And the third is the screen positive rate for social drivers of health. I'm assuming that's the actual level of social determinants problems that you find and want to bring down. The first would be mandatory next year. The second and third would be voluntary next year and mandatory in 2024. Dave, what do you think of these measures? More importantly, can you improve health equity through government payment regulations? I don't think anyone can doubt the sincerity of the Biden administration's efforts to promote health equity. At the same time, their efforts remind me of the old saying that the beatings will continue until morale improves. Until healthcare policy and practice fundamentally attack the profound maldistribution of healthcare facilities and practitioners, no amount of regulatory tinkering can affect any meaningful change. None of these new proposed health equity regulations by the Biden administration will improve the gaping disparity in healthcare access. In my humble opinion, ultimately, the only force powerful enough over time that can correct this redlining of healthcare assets is paying providers adequately to provide care to low-income populations. As we've said so many times, and I'll repeat it again, This means shifting from activity-based fee-for-service payment to full-risk payment models, bundles for episodic care, capitation for population health. Honestly, I wish the Biden administration would concentrate on this type of meaningful payment reform more than what they're doing on health equity, because that type of meaningful payment reform would do far more to promote health equity than any of the window dressing measures they're currently promoting. Lest anyone think this is impossible, Access Health in Muskegon, where I just was with Esther, offers first-dollar health insurance coverage at very affordable prices to employed individuals with incomes at 133% to 300% of the poverty level. They make it work financially by investing in preventative and promotive health care services that improve their members' overall health and lower the need for expensive acute care services. This isn't rocket science, people. Window dressing. Pretty strong. Thanks, Dave. Julie, any comments or questions for Dave? Well, Dave, since this was pretty much an invitation for you to get on your soapbox, I thought we'd take it in a different direction. (laughs) (laughs) When I was reading up about all the regs this week, I noticed something that 
I guess surprised me. So since you're more of a study, I thought I'd ask you about it. Were you surprised to see CMS consider a payment adjustment to hospitals for their sourcing of domestic supplies like N95 masks and other PPE? Like, have you seen that level of economic incentive from CMS before? Yeah, I was a bit surprised by that, and I haven't. Although I do think this is a good policy because it will help ensure adequate domestic supply when the next pandemic hits. So I liked it. But since you've given me the soapbox, Julie, I'll make one other point regarding the new payment regs. Reading these things just gives me a headache. Their complexity makes them ripe for manipulation. For 2023, CMS is proposing 1,000 495 changes to the ICD-10 diagnosis code set. These are the codes providers use to receive payment. They're remarkably complex and hard to administer, but they're absolutely vital to the lifeblood of the machinery. It's how hospitals get paid. So is there any wonder that the smartest people in healthcare are in revenue cycle? I can't wait for ICD-11, right? (laughs) What's that going to be like? Only 1,500 changes this year. There were like 767 MSDRGs or something, right? Like it's an amazing number of things to keep track of. So when that gets translated to providers, I mean, I don't even know how you keep track of all that. In my next life, I'll come back as a coder for healthcare. Right. All right. Now let's talk about CMS's proposals to improve maternal health. The regulations proposed on Monday also would do three things. First, they would create a new hospital designation that would identify birthing friendly hospitals. Those would be hospitals that follow best practices that advance high quality, safe and equitable care for pregnant and postpartum patients. Second, they would add a low-risk C-section birth measure to the inpatient quality reporting program. And third, they would add a severe obstetrics complication measure to the inpatient quality reporting program. The two new measures would be voluntary next year and mandatory in 2024. The birth-friendly hospital designation would happen in the fall of 2023. Julie, similar to what I asked Dave, What do you think of these three maternal health moves and measures? And more importantly, can you improve maternal health through government payment regulation? So similar to the soapbox Dave got on, I tried to pull back and think about all the good things about what this actually really does. So let's go through those. First and foremost, it's important to know that this is bigger than these three measures, right? The vice president, Javier Becerra, Chiquita Brooks-Lashore, they're all in a mission to ensure that maternal care, you know, as part of the broader goal of reducing health disparities is addressed. So that is absolutely what this is about. You know, second, as someone who experienced at least a questionably necessary C-section, I think these measures are a useful start. We don't usually have good data on maternity quality and safety in the inpatient setting. And I don't know, it's, it's good. I think it's good to be adding measures. It's a good contribution to the data that we have on pre and post. Third, you know, the vast majority of consumers do understand this concept of a seal of approval in this hospital designation. So I personally love these things. Maybe it's just the simplicity of the whole thing, but it's like getting, you know, Yelp ratings or or stars on consumer sites like Dave just mentioned. If we're trying to reach audiences of varying education levels, then it can be a powerful tool. What I worry about is how much these designations get marketed, how much they matter, how much consumers are actually able to pay attention to them because they're in their face. 
And I, I just worry that, you know, while it's a great idea, it may not go as far as it needs to. Fourth, and maybe my most bizarre comment is, I love what this doesn't mention at all, which is service line excellence. And I'm a big believer, as I suspect you are too, Dave, that health systems are going to need to pick their lanes and won't be able to be all things to all people. So this kind of government seal of approval and, you know, these measures hopefully move health systems in a direction that they attempt to be good at these services or they don't. And consumers can tell which providers are good at which services. So it's sort of a vision of the future of hospitals not being all things to all people. Now, lastly, and on the other hand, with these measures, you know, also comes a recommendation to the states to extend coverage for 12 months postpartum. So first, thank you to, I'm just going to say, all the women who had to have influenced this effort because anyone who has had a child knows how challenging those early days can be and how important support in the first months and year is, especially if something goes wrong. The issue I see is that the pre and postnatal are perhaps some of the most important times in pregnancy. And while I love this postpartum coverage recommendation, it's a recommendation. It's not something that has a lot of teeth right now. And we've got to get some more teeth around the Medicaid relationship here. Yeah, nothing worse than being a mediocre maternity hospital, right? That's right. <laughs> you're good at it or you're not. Thanks, Julie. Dave, any comments or questions for Julie? I really like how you characterize some of these new provisions and their consumer-friendly aspect are making it easier for people to see what's going on or to pick their places of care, Julie. But it's always struck me as somewhat odd that we rely on the government to do this type of quality measurement for us. We don't require that in other parts of our economic lives. There are organizations that, that we trust to do this more than the government. But absent anything else, we've got the government here. So anyway, my question, and I'm going to give you a chance to go on your soapbox a little bit and comment more on your fourth point on the broad level of care needed pre and postnatal. Most pregnancy complications result from inadequate prenatal care. Also, many expectant mothers are choosing to use midwives and or doulas for their deliveries. By focusing solely on hospital birthing experiences and not on the broader policies, to promote pre and postnatal maternal and child care. Is CMS missing the forest for the trees? Can these new regulations materially improve outcomes, particularly as they relate to maternal death and complications? You know, you are hitting on kind of the last comment I made, which is pre and post can be some of the most important contributors as we know from the data. And I agree with you. What we know about prenatal care the vast majority of women, unfortunately, seek prenatal care in the first trimester. Some wait until the third trimester, and some don't get prenatal care at all. And that ability to access that care, I would say more so than any decision being made on that woman's part, is really a predictor of overall maternal health and how health is started for these children being born. So these regs don't go far enough into that realm, but they do contribute to the story. And they also get at everything we've talked about, Dave, regarding the level of care and safety and quality inside of acute care settings as it relates to health equity and treating 
data on how we treat mothers regardless of their ethnic or other diversity, how we treat them, apples to apples. So I don't want to rain completely on the parade, but I agree with you that prenatal is still a huge kind of missing piece. I do want to mention one company that I'm really impressed by, the CEO, Christine, has started a company called Quilted, and she's effectively developing networks of, I'll say midwives and doulas. I think she's concentrating more on certain models and focusing on regional approaches to engaging mothers who want to use those services and ensuring that that becomes a covered benefit, just like our giving birth in a hospital. So I love seeing innovation here. I think it's real. I think we're starting to venture into the world of different business models, different licensure, and different comfort levels with business being part of their care process. So it'll be interesting to see how Quilted does, but it's exciting. Thanks, Julie. Yeah, the regs are not the whole solution, but they definitely are part of the solution. I subscribe to the theory of if you don't measure it, you can't improve it. So I'm good with these regulations. I also think transparency is just as powerful as payment and changing provider behavior. So let's see how these things play out. Great discussion as usual today. Now let's briefly talk about other big news that happened this week. Julie, it's been another big week for healthcare news. What jumped out at you? Well, a little good news on the abortion front. This is where I like federal judges, but a federal judge in Kentucky has temporarily blocked a new Republican-backed law that led the state's two remaining abortion clinics to stop procedures. So thank you, federal judge. Got it. Thanks, Julie. Dave, what topped your list of big health care stories this week? I was struck by a University of Michigan study that found smartwatches can track COVID progression and even show how sick individuals are becoming through their heart rate monitoring. This is yet more evidence of how powerful a force wearables can become in achieving earlier disease detection. CMS, are you paying attention? Hey, that could be a fourth and fifth ring on your watch, Dave. I love that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. And if you follow our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite streaming service, you'll get notified each time a new episode is available. Don't forget to tell a friend about Foresight Friday Roundup. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.